there, true believers, and welcome to Simply Devotion, the podcast that is all about seeking Jesus on deeper theological levels, because he is worthy of all of our devotion. Another exciting episode of Simply Devotion. And in season two, me and my co-host, Jonathan Martin, have been studying with you the historical Jesus, the real world Jesus, and what Jesus' culture and world was like when he was a real living person on this planet in Palestine. And the reality is... We can't really know much about the real historical Jesus until we figure out if the documents that we are looking at are authentic or not. So I have invited my good friend, Pastor Daniel Royo, who is just finishing up his PhD, to come to us and speak to us about the authenticity of the four Gospels, that would be the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Gospel of John being the non-Synoptic Gospel. And he's going to help us understand, help me and Jonathan understand, the authenticity of these Gospel accounts. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I am so excited about this episode. It's going to knock your socks off when you see how much validity there is for these four gospel accounts of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. Jonathan and Daniel and I, we're going to get a little bit Bible geeky, a little Theo geeky here, a little history geeky here, but it's so worth it. Just hang with us, chill with us, and I promise you, if you get to the end of this podcast, even if you take it in bite sizes, if you get the end of this episode, you will know so much about the Gospels and why they are valid texts to study the historical Jesus. Now, we are going to get a little technical. We are going to get a little theologian-like, but hang with us. It is well worth it. This will thrill your soul by the time Jonathan and Daniel and I are done. Now, I'm not going to take up any more time. This episode runs a little bit longer than our normal one, but worth every single second of it. I'm going to lead you right into, hey, Daniel, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Vinny. Uh, and uh, Jonathan, it's great to join you today uh, for the podcast. Um, I guess just a little bit about myself. I currently live uh, in the Silver Spring area of Maryland. Um, I'm serving as a pastor at the Burnt Mills uh, Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I've been here for uh, just about four years. But uh, in addition to that, um, since I guess I don't have enough on my plate, I uh, decided to uh, pursue a PhD in Biblical Studies, and I've been doing that through Faulkner University. It's a school in Montgomery, Alabama. Finished all of the classwork uh, and uh, am now uh, working on my dissertation. And my particular area of interest uh, is in 
the children of Abraham outside the covenant, uh, specifically uh, right now my dissertation topic is on how they're portrayed in the book of Genesis um, and how the book of Genesis describes uh, characters like Ishmael, uh, as well as uh, the children of Abraham through Keturah, uh, Midian, uh, Medan, and uh, that group uh, of people, as well as uh, in the next generation, it uh, goes to Esau, who, uh, despite being a descendant of Isaac, is uh, still uh, outside the covenant. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm looking at how the book of Genesis portrays um, those characters as compared to uh, the characters who are inside the covenant, the traditional Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's children. So that's my area of interest. Uh, to your specific uh, topic today, Vinny, one of the classes that I took uh, as a part of my PhD program um, was a class on uh, the resurrection in the Gospels. And uh, it was a great, great study um, to spend a whole semester just looking at the specifics of the resurrection, which is obviously a subcategory of the overall topic of the of the Gospels. And uh, so it, it's a topic of interest of mine. Uh, obviously, spent some time studying it, and so I'm glad to join you today uh, to look at uh, this topic of the reliability of the Gospels. And I'm I'm glad to have you. And I guess I would just add one more thing I would say about about Daniel. Daniel is one of my favorite people to go to when I want to talk to someone smart um, and, and someone who is going to challenge me on my thinking. We have had epic conversations. And, you know, whenever people see me at pastor events, you know, we, we sort of have pastor events and we have these training sessions. If people see me and Daniel talking, like just a table of people come around us and join us just so that they might get a little glimpse of, of the things he will be arguing with me about <laughs> in good ways. So I, I'm just, it's it's so fun to to have colleagues to, to have these sort of um, intellectual conversations with. And Daniel is that guy. I guess my first question to both of you guys is, since the Gospels themselves, you know, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the big accounts we Christians primarily look at to understand Jesus, are they authentic? I mean, because I hear things from various scholars who question them, like, where do we get them from? It's a great question. And and I think it, uh, looking at where the Gospels come from is important when it comes to uh, looking at their reliability. Um, there are, are various theories uh, as to where exactly they come from, but uh, I, I think uh, there, are, there is some validity and, and argument to the traditional uh, account um, that, uh, you know, the, the traditional uh, Christian view uh, dating back to the, the first uh, couple of centuries after Jesus, you know, I guess just taking them in order, uh, Matthew um, uh is attributed to one of Jesus' disciples, um, who was known as Levi Matthew. Uh, he was a tax collector, according to the account uh, that appears there in the Gospels, um, who uh, Jesus called to be his follower. And uh, then he uh, recounted his, um, his story. The, the second Gospel, uh, attributed to Mark, um, is uh, said to have been written by um, one of the early followers of Jesus, um, probably uh, his mother actually um, was more specifically a follower of Jesus. He's referred to in, in the uh, book of Acts uh, by the name John Mark, um, traveled with uh, some of the early uh, apostles. One of the early Christian writers uh, says that uh, he got his story of Jesus from Peter and that that's uh, the main source for what Mark records in his gospel. 
then uh, you know whether or not that's the case, it's a different story. But but that's one of the early uh, uh, explanations for why it is that Mark writes his story that he's not necessarily the um, eyewitness, but that um, he gathers it from uh, information from others. Luke um, is um, uh, traditionally said to be the uh, physician who appears in the Book of Acts, also the author of the Book of Acts. Um, and he says at the beginning of his gospel, uh, in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, that uh, he uh, did research and went and interviewed uh, people who uh, had uh, seen Jesus, had known the things that happened, and then he, he tried to make uh, you know a sense of it and record it. Uh, and then uh, John uh, is said to have been um, that earlier followers of Jesus who later on in life, uh, uh, probably the close of his life, he writes uh, his uh, record and uh, memory of what it is that happened. Uh, and uh, that becomes then the, the fourth gospel um, that uh, is recorded. Right. So there is some discussion, not some, a, a, a fair amount of discussion among New Testament scholars who are not Christian that perhaps these were not written by who the church traditionally says wrote them. And mm-hmm. I, I agree with you, Daniel. I think there's a lot of validity in the traditional understanding of the church. But I guess my question would be, does it change the authority of them or the church's use of them, even if they are not written by who the church traditionally thinks wrote them? Um, it, it does to a certain extent. Uh, in other words, uh, there there is some room and, and we have to acknowledge um, that certainly, like I mentioned in, in my own summary, uh, you know, there are uh, two of them are already on, in the traditional understanding, were not written by eyewitnesses. Mark right. and Luke don't even claim to have, have been there to see it. They already, we know, they, they were relying on what someone else told them. Um, so, you know, that, that in and of itself tells us there was some process um, by which the information came. And uh, even in the contents of the stories, um, you know, it, it's clear some of the things that are recorded there the the people who wrote it weren't there to see it. Um, they had to get it secondhand from somewhere. You know, uh, if we take, for example, uh, the story of Jesus' temptations with Satan, you know, the, all of the accounts that appear, it's just Jesus and Satan. So, well, you know, they weren't there to see it. So uh, if if we're going to take the traditional and, and assume that those are true, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, you know, some of the supernatural questions and so forth uh, as, as we go through the topic, um, you know, let, let's just assume for, from a very basic standpoint that Jesus told somebody what it is that happened out there, and then in turn, uh, whoever it is that Jesus told later told somebody else. So, you know, there, there was uh, some process um, of conversation being passed on from one person to another before it was actually written down, and, and you know, how that process works. That's where then we get into the weeds. Um, and I, there are scholars who are not Christian who, who will question and say, well, how far along did that process go? Where, at what point did what would be considered reliable information uh, perhaps get elaborated, expanded on, or, or somebody started to, to make stuff up and include things for whatever their purposes were 
in order to create the way that the Gospels are. And that's, it, it's at that point in the discussion where the differentiation comes to say, you know, did, did the early church, um, the early followers of Jesus within, let's just say, 100 years after the time that Jesus lived, did they try to expand on or insert uh, elements to the story of Jesus that weren't necessarily the actual events that happened? And, and on that basis then, because there is that, that space of time that everybody acknowledges happened, then do we then create doubt? Um, and that's to your question, Vinny, uh, you know, the farther along we go, and if we want to say that, that there were early followers of Jesus who uh, created new stories or new elements or new teachings or new ideas that weren't necessarily what Jesus himself said, then it introduces more of a, a tendency to want to question um, whether or not what appears in the Gospels actually reflects what Jesus did and taught and experienced. As I'm listening to what Dan is saying, you know, I I can relate, you know, to to what he's saying. You know, when I talk to people about the Gospels and about Jesus and you know uh, what he did, you know, a lot of people question, like, oh, you know, how do we know that those are reliable accounts? You know, uh, you did mention that at least two of the gospels are not eyewitnesses, you know, and a lot of people were like, we like eyewitness people because they saw it, you know, they can report what they're saying, what they saw, what Jesus said, you know, they, there's that personal connection with Jesus. But when we have two people who are now acting as reporters, you know, do we have any indication that they were good reporters do we have any indication that what they are writing is is true well I, there I, there are several factors that i think contribute to that um and it's not only the the internal evidence uh, in other words let, let's just take uh, the fact that we do have uh, four uh recorded sources you know it would be very easy uh on, on several levels you know if, if we only had one source and we only had one account of jesus life uh, then yeah, we could pick it apart endlessly, and and the very fact that there is only one source would uh, raise that question. So, you know, when whenever uh, you know we are looking for evidence, uh, anytime since the time of the Gospels to today, um, you know we we want to independently verify information, and you know journalists will use that terminology um, and say, you know, I only have one source, I don't know, I, I want to independently verify it. So. We know the idea that says you need at least somebody else to give some kind of similar information that would indicate that something has some basis in fact, as opposed to just being something somebody made up for their own agenda. So the very fact that we have multiple sources for the Gospels is in and of itself a good basis to work from. Then when we start building from that, this is where there's a, a great book that's out there um, that I uh, just read a couple of years ago. And uh, the book is entitled uh, Cold Case Christianity. And uh, the author, he previously was a uh, cold case detective in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, so he dedicated himself. He previously had been a skeptic um, and had questioned uh, anything related to the stories that appear in the Bible, particularly the Gospels. 
Um, but then he applies um, the same principles that he applied as a cold case detective uh, to saying the farther a long time goes, uh, the, the less reliable sources become, the less reliable information becomes. Um, and, you know, a cold case detective has to go back and try to piece the story together. And he makes a great case uh, of looking at even those pieces of information to say, for example, one of the things that critics bring up about the Bible is they say, well, even though we have four uh, Gospels and, you know, the first three have a lot of similarities, that's why they're called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover a lot of the same stories, they cover a lot of the same information, and yet there are places at which the information that they give varies slightly. Um, so you have, you know, differences of the numbers who are present for something. Uh, so one gospel recounts how, you know, there was one uh, man possessed by a demon uh, on the other side of the Lake of Galilee, and another gospel says there were two. Um, right. You know, uh, the right. uh, stories like that where, where the details are slightly different and, and, you know, uh, uh, his name is uh, J. Warner Wallace, uh, is the author of the uh, Cold Case Christianity. And so he makes the point and says, whenever you get various accounts um, from various sources, um, you're going to have variation on details um, just because of perspective or because, you know, memory is slightly faulty or all kinds of different factors that will contribute to some of the details changing. But regardless of the details changing, when the core elements of the story are true and there is agreement across all of the witnesses that recount it, there is where it's much more reliable to say, okay, somebody may have been standing 50 feet away and somebody was standing two feet away. Somebody may have, uh, you know, whatever the, the variations are as to how they became a witness to something, they may not have seen some element or, or who knows what. But when the core factors are all in agreement, that's where it increases the reliability of it. So the, the same uh, idea would apply to the Gospels, where you know there may be some variations from one Gospel to the next, but the fact that you have multiple sources from multiple places, from multiple angles, who, when they all recount the events that happened, the core elements are consistent. That's what adds to the trustworthiness uh, of the accounts. Um, and so when it comes to the Gospels, um, that, you know, not only do we not have one source, but when we have multiple sources, it's clear that they didn't all sit down and say, hey, let's pretend like we're all a bunch of sources, but let's make all the details the same. Well, that, that, evidence, that gives the evidence of a conspiracy where everybody agreed ahead of time as to what their story was going to be. Um, instead, when you have all of the variety and you have various uh, varieties to choose from, that's where it adds to the credibility and, and, and to the story that, in fact, what the, the Gospels are saying happened indeed does have uh, a basis in some historical reality that they're pointing back to. But the big thing we're saying is that the places they agree help strengthen the testimony and the fact that there might be small variants in detail actually increase the authenticity in that no one conspired together to make a solid narrative without error. Right. And and there, even that being the case, um, it, it's um, testimony that comes even external to the Gospels from the early experiences of the church, again, adds to that credibility. Um, so, you know, some of the books that are written in the New Testament that appear before the Gospels, um, like the writings of Paul, there, uh, 
he already speaks to some of the teachings that he had heard of what Jesus had said that again adds to the further uh, pieces of evidence uh, that point to saying you know it, it's not limited to the gospels there are other testimonies that scholars even agree were written you know uh, as early as 50 AD that uh, are already speaking about what the beliefs of Jesus uh, followers were what the teachings were that were shared all of those pieces are already present uh, and already attested uh, at this early date um, so when when we're looking at the pieces of information and and the sources that are present uh, and how it is like we're saying even though they they vary somewhat uh, in some of the details the core elements are the same which tells us that the the core elements of the gospels and their account reflect a reality that is behind them um, that we can point to I just want to just reflect on that for the sake of our listeners. And, and they may not realize that, like they open the New Testament, and it's like Matthew's first, right? So obviously Matthew's first, but actually the synoptic gospels um, are, are written after Paul. So it's, you know, cause like in our Bibles, you know, by the time we get to Romans, like we've already read Matthew, Mark and Luke, right? And to the average person in the pew, it's like, what do you mean it didn't happen in that order? But you raise an excellent point that Paul wrote most of his work before the Gospels and the fact that Paul, who was and was an enemy of the church, <laughs> right? He was a skeptic who became convinced and converted. So the fact that he confirms events that are in the Gospel, even though he doesn't quote a lot of the stories, but he, he, he's, he's like, this was passed on to me. This tradition was passed on to me that the Lord said on the night that he was betrayed, right? The fact that he can do that before they're actually written down shows that these stories were well known in the Jewish community, even before the writing down of the documents that we call the Gospels. Would that be fair? Yes. And it, it's even to the point that, you know, in in First Corinthians 15, when Paul is arguing for the resurrection, which is itself one of the most challenging of the uh, teachings in the Gospels because of the supernatural nature of it and, and so forth, Paul actually says, uh, you know, if if you don't if you don't believe me, here's some people you can go talk to who are still alive today. There are a few that have passed away, but uh, most of them are still alive. You can go talk to them. They saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. Well, you know, it it doesn't make sense for Paul to say, hey, here's some people you can go talk to that can verify these stories if those people don't exist right you know it, it, it's he's only can make that argument if they're actually you know those people who he names who uh, the recipients of the letter can go in and talk to and and actually verify and say yeah yeah we were there this we saw jesus alive after he rose from the dead well that again you know wherever we date the book of first corinthians uh, somewhere in the 50s ad he's making that very appeal and saying the story circulating and and here's my sources you can go talk to them too something that i think is really important to what uh dan was saying is how in the gospels when it comes to the core elements we find agreement so does this help explain why 
we tend to look to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as opposed to some of these other gospels that are circulating. I know that my students already in middle school, you know, they talk about things like the gospel of Thomas and these other gospels that are floating around. Is there a reason why uh, we gravitate towards Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, as opposed to some of these other gospels that people mention? Uh, that's, a, that's a great point, Jonathan. There is a reason to gravitate to them. At a starting point, it's what we've already been talking about. There, There is evidence, um, not only internally uh, in the Gospels, like some of the things that they include and don't include. You know, we know some of the arguments from the early church, for example, centered around the role of circumcision. Um, and Paul spends a lot of time on that. Well, uh, you know, if the Gospels were to have been written later, then uh, it seems like uh, you know, if somebody was making things up, like we were talking about earlier, and, and some of the early followers of Jesus want to just plug stuff into the the story of the Gospels, it would be it would make sense if they were to try to put in the in Jesus' mouth answers to arguments that they were having. But Jesus says very very little about circumcision. You know, it, it doesn't become an issue until there there is an evangelistic effort and and they're reaching out to to Greeks and. Greeks are trying to join the church, and so the argument about does somebody need to be circumcised to be a follower of Jesus or not becomes very, very central. Well, the time in which Jesus is teaching, that's not a point of concern. So the fact that that topic doesn't come up in the Gospels tells us, again, that that they were written at a fairly early date, and, and it was not, you know, somebody trying to say, hey, well, let me manipulate Jesus and make him say something that agrees with me. Instead, there was the effort to say, this is what Jesus himself actually taught, and and then the later writings deal with what the fallout is uh, as the early church starts to expand and, and grow and address different issues as they uh, happen. So, um, you know, that, that becomes one of the internal pieces of evidence to point to the Gospels being uh, at an early date. And, and in contrast to that, and this is what you're referring to, Jonathan, you know, the, the other uh, so-called Gospels um, that uh, are said to have been uh, written as accounts of Jesus, they take much more of that kind of character to them. So, in other words, it's, it, it, there's a tendentiousness to them. Or, in other words, uh, there's the effort to say, you know, I write, write this Gospel so that I can say that Jesus agreed with what I want to say. Um, and, and that becomes you know, a lot of the, the evidence in them. So, you know, elements of the Gospel of Thomas or uh, even later Gospels that are written 200 years after the time of Jesus that reflect the teachings that were present at that time. So things like Gnosticism, uh, you know, which is that uh, an early belief that believed in the dualism of humanity, that, that the soul was what was good and the body was bad. And, and so there were those who wanted to emphasize that idea. Well, a great way to do it was to say, well, this is what Jesus taught. So let me just write a gospel that makes that point and claim that Jesus taught these things, and then it adds to my credibility. And so some of those other gospels, uh, you know, the so-called gospel of Peter or uh, the, the gospel of Judas has gotten a lot of attention, especially thanks to Dan Brown and uh, right. the Da Vinci Code and uh, all of those kinds of things. That creates fodder or the, the material to introduce doubt into uh, whether or not the, the four Gospels uh, that are in, uh, you know, considered to be uh, the parts of the Bible, that they may very well have some other agenda to them. And that, that is where there are scholars who even introduce the idea that somehow there was a fight in early Christianity and it just so happened that 
the group that was powerful got to choose which gospels were meaningful and which mm. ones got discarded. And that's, you know, it makes for great movie scripts, but that's not in fact what, what uh, happened in the early church. Uh, there was already uh, arguments, even in the time of the uh, writers of the New Testament, they were addressing some of those concerns. And it was with time that people tried to write stuff that they attributed to you know somebody early uh, on just so that they could prove their point you know it's like a meme that i've seen on uh on facebook uh, it has a picture of abraham lincoln and uh next to it it says don't believe everything you see on the internet abraham lincoln well you know we, we understand <laughs> the joke uh you know there are all kinds of things that are attributed to some historical figure that some people consider to be uh, uh, valuable or, or meaningful or having some uh, reliability as, as making important contributions to history. And so with time, people like to say, oh, well, an important person did all kinds of great things and it makes to serve my point today. They're written later, they're written with an agenda, and they don't seem to be referenced by the other New Testament writers. In, in a very simplified form, yes. Um, and, and then it, even in the internal context, you know, it becomes clear that there are teachings, ideas that are, are clearly at contradiction uh, from the, the Gospels, the four that, that are considered uh, part of the Bible, a part of the canon. And, and so one of the uh, best examples as to reasons to question some of the other Gospels is not only that, you know, there's no evidence from the early church that uh, any individuals who formed the part of the early church uh, believed uh, the, those other so-called Gospels, but even the internal evidence. So this is one of my favorite ones that uh, uh, came up is in the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, the last statement in the Gospel of Thomas. Thomas is really ba basically the so-called Gospel of Thomas is just a collection of uh, teachings and so-called wise sayings that Thank are said you. to be attributed to Jesus. The last verse, this is uh, Gospel of Thomas, verse 114. Uh, I'm going to read it and, uh, and just think about what the words are that are said here. And this is supposedly what Jesus said. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary go forth from among us, for women are not worthy of the life. Jesus said, Behold, I shall lead her, supposedly speaking of Mary here, Behold, I shall lead her, that I may make her male, in order that she also may become a living spirit like you males. For every woman who makes herself male shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, are, are we to say that the Gospel of Thomas has some reliability? And are we to say then that if it has some reliability, that Jesus is teaching that in order to go to heaven, one must become a male? Our Mormon friends may be very fond of that verse. <laughs> yeah. And, and there, <laughs> that introduces a whole different question. Right. Um, but nevertheless, um, they're there for, for those who, who want to say that they are followers of Jesus and at the same time want to introduce the Gospel of Thomas uh, as uh, some sort of reliable source. Right. Um, are we to say that that then uh, makes an argument to say uh, no women can go to heaven um, because the Gospel of Thomas says so? Uh, well, there are all kinds of problems with that. Um, right. And that's that's just one example of uh, one of the so-called Gospels um, that uh, is introduced as some sort of alternate source of information. 
fascinating, fascinating stuff I could talk about all day. But I want to shift gears a little bit, Daniel, for the sake of the kind of questions I hear as a pastor in the field. When it comes to the Gospels that are in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how did we physically get copies of them? And what is the stuff I hear about variants and why are different translations slightly different? Oh, it's a great question, Benny. And um, the real issue there um, is a, a discipline of uh, study of ancient writings that's uh, called textual criticism. At its basic level, at a starting point, we don't have any of the uh, actual texts that were written by whomever we would consider to be the original writers. So we don't have what Matthew actually sat down and wrote with his own hand. Um, we don't have what Mark wrote. We don't have what Luke wrote. We don't have what John wrote. What we have are uh, handmade copies of their writings. One example, which I think is an important one to consider. So John uh, is said to have written in about the year, uh, the 90s AD. So it's close to the end of, or close to the year 100 uh, AD. He uh, appears to have written in the city of Ephesus. So if he's writing in Ephesus, he makes, you know, his copy uh, of the gospel. Uh, and then in turn, uh, they want to send it out. Um, and they want other people to have access to, to be able to read what uh, John has written. So uh, there are uh, people who, particularly in the ancient world, there were scribes um, whose job was to copy things. You know, the level of literacy um, was relatively low. And uh, so uh, people had jobs whose job just was to read and write. So you had uh, some Somebody would make several copies by hand of the manuscript, and then they would send them to whomever it was that they wanted to send it to. So in the New Testament, the earliest manuscript that we have, and it's uh, not only the earliest manuscript of uh, the Gospels, but it's the earliest manuscript overall uh, of the New Testament, uh, is a fragment. It's written on papyrus. Uh, it's called P52, and uh, it was found in Egypt, and uh, it's dated to about the year 125 to 130 AD. Now, think think about what that means. Uh, if we take, let's take the later date just for the sake of it. So let's take 130 AD. That means that within 35, 40 years uh, of when the Gospel of John is written, there's already a fragment uh, of that Gospel of John that we have today. That tells us a number of different things. It tells us not only that the Gospels are written, you know, at a very early time, and that by comparison, you know, manuscripts that we have of other uh, historical events. So Homer, for example, uh, you know, Homer writes in about the year 800 uh, BC. Well, the, the earliest manuscripts that we have of Homer's writings, the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, are from about a thousand years after the time of Homer. Um, well, you know, that's a long time for hand copies to be made, to be passed across uh, from generation to generation to generation. Um, and yet, you know, we, we look at that and say, well, um, this, we're pretty sure, pretty close to what, uh, you know, Homer's uh, poetry actually looked like. To have uh, within, you know, roughly 40 years of when John writes his gospel, to have a copy of it that it's not whole, you know, it's just a small fragment, um, but nevertheless, and we already know that it's present at that time, and it, there's enough on the fragment to identify who 
uh, or you know what section of the Bible it comes from. So this tells us uh, the early time at which the Gospels are written. It also draws us to a very early time where we have a fragment that is already uh, extant and, and available and uh, able to be read. And then uh, when we expand on that, you know, across the entirety of, of the uh, New Testament, we have hundreds upon hundreds uh, of manuscripts from uh, relatively early times within the first couple of centuries. And this is where, it, when we think about what that means, so you know, we have the gospel writers who write their original manuscript. Right. Then that manuscript gets copied and it gets sent to various parts of the ancient Mediterranean world. So right. there's some copy that's sent to Rome. There's some copy that's sent to Antioch. There's a copy that's sent to Alexandria. There's a copy that's sent all over. Right. Well, back to the question of the reliability. It'd be very difficult once it's sent and once the manuscript copies have been made and have been distributed to Rome, to Antioch, to uh, North Africa, to, uh, you know, and it, it very early it makes its way further. So, you know, it's making its way towards Babylon. It's making its way up into the Caucasus. Um, there are copies that are making their way towards uh, England uh, and Great Britain. You can't pull all those pieces back and say... They're not digital. Well, They're not digital. You can't, you can't, you can't delete the send, right? Exactly. And, and besides that, you can't you can't go back and adjust things to make them agree. So you know the the fact that we can find uh, not only copies in Greek, which you know the language of the New Testament was written in, but again within a couple of centuries we already have translations into other languages. Uh, so we have translations into Coptic. Um, we have translations uh, into uh, Syriac. Uh, translations into Latin um, and. You know, they had to have a manuscript in Greek to then translate into whatever language it is. So we have, with all of these various sources that are present, there, as we are able now, you know, uh, almost 2,000 years since that time, to piece together all of these various manuscripts, we can compare them and say, hey, we, we can very reliably gather what it is that was likely written by the, the original writers of the New Testament. Now, let's acknowledge, within the last uh, couple of decades, um, there have been a lot of questions raised about um, some of the differences between some of these manuscripts. And, and that has been a point of contention uh, in some elements of, of the study of the Gospels. Uh, because the truth is, even though, like I just pointed out, we have the, the spreading out of the manuscripts uh, and they are distributed across the Mediterranean world and beyond, anytime that somebody does a hand copy of anything, there's always the possibility of introducing some uh, discrepancy. Right. Um, and so, you know, we know it. We, we any one of us who went to school, right. we're learning to write, you know, anything you write by hand, you miss a letter, you misspell something, you... Uh, whatever it is, you know, even in this age of computers, uh, you know, I'm, I'm typing something on the computer and I miss a word and sometimes spell check and grammar check gets it and sometimes it doesn't. And anytime we read a book, even though it's gone through editors and it's gone through all of that process, we still find typographical errors. Well, multiply that in the ancient world by just one person making a manuscript, they're going to introduce uh, things where they're going to skip a word, they're going to misspell something. And the truth is, textual critics, those who study these ancient manuscripts, will tell you, not one of the manuscripts 
perfectly matches any other manuscript. Every one of the manuscripts has some variation, some difference uh, that, that is present. Now, what's helpful for that is we actually now, um, in any student uh, who goes through uh, and studies the ancient languages, you know, get a copy of uh, a New Testament. And uh, in a Greek New Testament, uh, there are notes at the bottom in what's called a critical edition that will tell you where it is that there are variations between one manuscript and another and uh, how it is that one manuscript differs from another manuscript. It's estimated somewhere between about 97 to 99 percent uh, of the variations in the manuscripts are inconsequential. Uh, in other right. words, it doesn't doesn't really matter. Um, spelling mistakes, I hear. Spelling mistakes, grammar mistakes, missing a line, missing a word, all the kind of things you would expect to see if you're hand copying a document. Exactly. Um, and it, you know, it, it's uh, e even as simple, like you say, missing a line where when somebody is looking at one manuscript and they're writing on the other and their eye just skips down one line and they keep on writing, you know, the, those kinds of things happen. It, it doesn't change what is present there. And it, as a, a person who is studying the manuscript, you can see what happened. There's no conspiracy. There's no, uh, right. you know, some, somebody behind the curtain pulling strings. It, it's a, a simple mistake of somebody who's hand copying something. One of my favorite classes that I took uh, doing uh, my Masters of Divinity was uh, the formation of the New Testament. And we talked a lot about what you are talking about, where we took a look at manuscripts. Of course, these were scans of the manuscripts because they wouldn't trust us with the real thing. But we were looking at these manuscripts and we had to go through and collate them, which is basically comparing uh, a manuscript to another manuscript to find where the differences are. And one of the things that I noticed is exactly what you're saying is when there are differences, you can kind of tell what happened. Why is there a difference? And I like to relate it to my daughter who loves like her love language is like words of affirmation. So she's always trying to write me little notes or letters of things that she wants to tell me. And, you know, one day she kind of wrote down and, and she wrote, you know, thanks, Dodd. And I'm like, thanks, Dodd, D-O-D. Well, it's obvious what she was trying to say. She was trying to say, thanks, Dad not thanks Dodd. So context, as we read and as we look at what's going on with the discrepancies, it's obvious why the discrepancy exists. And very, 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 very few of those discrepancies are uh, have theological or significant impact on the meaning of of the text itself. So I really enjoyed having to go through that process of comparing manuscripts and, and trying to figure out where the discrepancies are because it gave me an appreciation for how reliable the New Testament actually is. Like we can actually say, we've got a pretty good idea of what the original said. Adding to that, and that that's where the numbers become uh, kind of what has a shock value. Uh, it's kind of the sticker shock where somebody will say, well, there are you know, hundreds of thousands of differences among manuscripts. Well, yes, but it's all of the nature of what you were just talking about, Jonathan. You know, it's misspelling, it's, it's, uh, it's discernible what it is that happened. Um, as far as consequential things, and this is, this is where, uh, as Vinny was talking about, 
there are those who have highlighted particular verses about which there are questions. And uh, there, I think it is valuable to take just a moment and look at them. Um, so, sure. uh, you know, there are several uh, verses, for example, among the Gospels, where uh, the most likely explanation is a scribe who was writing, and they came to a similar story that appears in another uh, of the Gospels, like we were talking about the Synoptic Gospels, so let's say they were copying the book of Mark and they recounted a story. Well, Mark includes different details, but uh, this same scribe had read the account in the book of Luke. And there's a detail that appears in the book of Luke that just doesn't appear in the book of Mark. And so they thought, well, let's just make it read more smoothly. So they include that detail. Well, there are several verses that we can look at that that is the case where it, by removing the verse, it doesn't actually remove uh, that particular detail. You just have to look at the other gospel, uh, and the same content uh, appears there uh, that appears in uh, the, the verse where supposedly it's been removed or taken out. Um, so there, there are a number of verses in the gospels, and the gospels are the main place at which this happens in the New Testament, where the, the scribes were just trying to harmonize things. There's another example where um, uh, this is the story of um, uh, the paralytic um, by the pool. And the, the way in which the Gospel of John records it, John just says they tried to get in when the water moved. Well, you know, uh, if somebody doesn't know why it is that, that uh, those who were, had various illnesses around the pool wanted to get in when the water moved, the, there, it appears that a scribe decided to add just an extra detail and say, well, there was a belief at the time that when the water moved, uh, that it had um, an angel came and moved the waters. And uh, so that's why they were trying to get into the water. Well, it doesn't appear in some manuscripts. It does appear in others. And so the likely explanation is one of the scribes who's copying says, hey, it'd be helpful to explain why they're trying to get into the water. So they include that detail. The, the biggest uh, questions that come in the story of the Gospels, um, or the biggest sections that uh, have been uh, brought into question are, for example, the story of the woman caught in adultery, um, yes. and uh, the reason that that particular uh, passage uh, is questioned is because in a number of ancient manuscripts, um, it, it has funny things that happen with it. So there are some manuscripts at which it appears uh, in John 8, where it is traditionally attributed. Um, but there are some manuscripts where it appear in other sections, including in the book of Luke. And so, you know, the question comes, well, how how would it be the case that some manuscripts put it in, in John at the section where chapter 8 would be, and another manuscript puts it in the book of Luke, um, and other manuscripts just don't have it all together? And so that that becomes an example of a passage where there are people who have raised questions, and, and in most modern translations, there's some note uh, in the translation, either a footnote or it's put in brackets or something to indicate to say, we're not real sure um, what it is that happened with this story and why it is that various manuscripts handle it in different ways. Um, I, I think that the story itself reflects the overall character of Jesus and who he was, and it fits in with um, the, the rest of what the, the gospel say, but we have to be honest and acknowledge and say there's something different about that story as it appears in the various manuscripts uh, in antiquity, and that's what the note that appears in, in modern translation indicates. You know, the, the same thing happens with the 
uh, ending of the book of Mark. Right. Um, and there, um, different manuscripts um, that we have uh, have variations on what actually is written there at the end of the book of Mark. And, uh, you know, to what extent that passage is reliable in tracing its way all the way back to what Jesus actually said. Um, again, uh, there there are enough pieces of evidence that it's, it, it is worthy of putting a footnote to say, there are manuscripts that vary, but in neither case, I would say, both the story of the woman caught in adultery and the questions about the ending of the book of Mark, no no Christian doctrine is affected there. You know, uh, there are plenty of other passages that talk about Jesus forgiving sins. Uh, there are plenty of other passages that talk about the importance of the gospel and that Jesus instructed his followers to go Great and teach commission. it. Um, uh, and so uh, it, neither passage becomes, uh, in essence, um, the hinge on which uh, the any particular teaching uh, is affected in the Bible, and that becomes part of that 1% to 2% uh, of uh, the, the New Testament, or more specifically the Gospels, about which um, there are some questions, and, and there, there are issues raised to say, mm, there, there's at least a worthy of a footnote to acknowledge that, that there, there are some questions about these passages. But I think when we look at the big picture of what's going on, it may be a really important story to us, but it doesn't change any doctrine. And it's just a part of that 2% variant you know, throughout the Gospels. The big picture is we have these Gospel accounts that were written down by the writer. And we're looking at this case, John, he writes it down. He sends it out to his friends, who sends it to his friends, who send it around the world. And afterwards, we bring them all back together in our time, compare the variants, and that there will be variants. And I think the other thing is we maybe date where we think the variants came from, and then we just keep comparing them until we get what we would consider an eclectic text. I don't know if that's the right word, Daniel. You can help me. An eclectic version of the accounts of John, per se. Well, what an eclectic text is, um, is that is a text that is what some editors in comparing various manuscripts do the best to their ability to determine what it is that was likely the text that was originally considered to be the writer of the gospel. You know, there the, the, within textual criticism, there are two terms that are used. One is an eclectic text, and one is a diplomatic text. And a diplomatic text is this is actually what a manuscript has. Um, so, if if we were to take one of the ancient manuscripts, you know, some of the more famous ones, because they they have uh, the largest collection of um, the writings of the New Testament all bound in one piece would be, for example, Codex Sinaiticus. So, you know, that was a, a codex is the name of the style of the book. So they had already switched from using scrolls to creating books like we think of them today, where pages are bound on one side and you can flip through them. Um, so that's what a codex is. Um, and then Sinaiticus is because, uh, according to the story that's told, um, it was found at Mount Sinai, uh, St. Catherine's Monastery. So if, if that uh, Greek text called Codex Sinaiticus were to be printed and, you know, just edited in order to put it in, in printable category rather than just facsimile, so that would be pictures of it, 
If instead it's turned into writing like we would be able to read today, that's what would be called a diplomatic text. Uh, most of the Greek New Testaments that we use are what's called an eclectic text, and that's where the editors, again, have looked through the manuscripts and they have said, you know, this is what we think is probably the closest that we can come to what Matthew himself wrote. But that's why there are consistently new editions coming out, um, because they keep going back through, they find new manuscripts, uh, and they say, oh, it might, this, uh, this particular word might very well come before this other word. And, and that's important to know, and, and I want to emphasize that, because, you know, uh, for your listeners, uh, Vinny and Jonathan, who, who don't study Greek, in, in Greek, um, word order is not as important as it is in English. Um, right. in, in Greek, um, word meaning or, or how words are used is determined in large part by the endings on the words. So uh, we, we do it a little bit in English with pronouns. So we know the difference between I, me, and my. All of them are, are word, pronouns that we refer to myself, but we change the pronoun depending on what use it has in the sentence. So I is, uh, you know, it's a subject. Uh, me is, is an object and my would be possessive. In Greek, that's applicable to all nouns. So every noun in Greek varies depending on what use it has in the sentence. If it's a subject, if it's an object, uh, if it's uh, indirect object, if it's uh, whatever it is, even a possessive, so forth, the, the way in which the word is written changes. And so words or sentences in Greek can come in all different orders, and it still says the same thing. So that's where even some of the changes, like we were talking about earlier, the variations between manuscripts, even if the word order has changed slightly, it doesn't change the meaning of the sentence. Um, in fact, I, I saw a presentation by a Greek scholar one time um, where he took one sentence in English and he, then he gave it, I think it was in 600 different ways in Greek, and it all meant the same thing. And, <laughs> and you know, it had to do with word order um, and some synonym changes and you could write the same sentence that appears one way in English in about 600 different ways in Greek. When we understand that, then is when the editing process um, that creates an eclectic text also, you know, it, it becomes uh, an important uh, process to know. And this is true even, uh, and, you know, let's very, uh, or let's go just a step deeper. So a lot of the argument about verses that are taken out become fodder for arguments about a King James version versus other version. Well, um, this is where it's important to know. Even the the text on which the uh, King James uh, is based, so uh, it's sometimes referred to as the Textus Receptus, um, that's the Latin term that just means the received text. There, uh, Desiderius Erasmus um, was a humanist, um, but a New Testament scholar, at least a Greek uh, scholar uh, in the uh, late 14, early 1500s, um, he even, uh, in the Greek text that he was writing, was writing an eclectic text. So he was using the manuscripts that he had access to at his time, and most of them fairly closely agreed, um, because they were all from the same region in, in Byzantine Empire, and so there were some slight variations between them. So he was having to sort out um, some of the textual issues that were there, even though they were minor, and he put together uh, his uh, text uh, that then became uh, referred to as the received text. Uh, and that same process uh, of textual criticism took place. Just for vocabulary purposes, um, this is where uh, in historical references, textual criticism has often been referred to as lower criticism. 
that it, it's not questioning whether or not God intervened. It's instead sorting through these issues of various uh, textual variations. And that's in contrast to higher criticism, which would be uh, the attempt to reconcile what appears in the text of the Bible with uh, external historical right. perceptions um, that then bring into question whether or not the history of the Bible lines up with other sources of history that are out there. I, I want to just kind of uh, point out that a lot of times when we talk about, oh, texts were taken out of the Bible or, you know, things are being added in or, you know, we've got all these different manuscripts and blah, 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 blah. A lot of times people look at that and they're like, oh, no, 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 we don't want stuff being removed from the Bible. We don't want stuff, you know, and so they kind of paint a picture like this is bad. But in reality, this is good because we want to know what was in the original. And this is the process that people take to try and get as close to the original as possible. And so in reality, this is a good thing. It's a good pursuit. And as we find more manuscripts and as we study more about what makes them different, we can actually piece together something that was as close to the original as possible. And I don't know about you guys, but that's what I want. You know, as, as a Bible scholar, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, I want to know what happened. I want to know what was said. And this process that we've been describing is the process that we need to take so that we know the real Jesus, so that we know what Jesus said. And so this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And it's an exciting thing that we live in a time when we are forever finding new manuscript evidence and digging it out of the desert <laughs> and bringing it into the modern world and being able to put back the pieces of the puzzle, right? More clear and more clear all the time, right? So we can be more confident in 2020 about what Jesus actually did and said than they did back in 1611. And that, that's where the, the mountain of evidence only contributes more to it. Uh, in other words, it, the fact that there are as, as few variations and that we can identify what those variations are and that, that when it comes down to it, there are, are very few about which there's actually any dispute, again, adds to the reliability of saying, you know, mo most of the scribes across time, they took seriously their work. You know, right. they, they believed that they were passing on the word of God you know, even if we can argue somewhat of, of how it is that individuals understood inspiration and some of that process, nevertheless, they believed that this was vital information for the spiritual well-being of those who were going to be reading it. And with the, the care and concern that they took with copying it, um, that we can point and say, you know, there are a couple of passages that individuals question, and yet the totality of the Gospels all points to a historical reality that has been tested by time and that it, we can know you know these are the things that jesus did these are the events that happened uh, these are the things that jesus taught and, and that uh, you know 
99% are are agreed upon. There, it only enhances um, my belief in the verifiability of all that Jesus said and taught. Leading secular scholars, why they may differ on interpretation and meaning, basically come to the same conclusion that the four gospel accounts in our New Testament are the authentic Jesus followers documents. Now, secular historians and New Testament scholars like Bar Ehrman and other big names, they may disagree with inspiration. They may disagree with the miracles. They may disagree even with the dating of some of the documents. But what is interesting to me is that they don't disagree with the things we have discussed here today for the most part. Basically, they would agree that the four Gospels in our New Testament are what the followers of Jesus believed they saw and heard, irregardless of the dating and who they might think wrote them. They believe this is what those who followed the historical Jesus of Nazareth wrote down about him. And yes, and in fact, I want to add to what you're saying, uh, Vinny. Um, in my class that I referred to earlier on on the resurrection in the Gospels, um, one of the things that was very helpful um, was um, there's a scholar by the name of Michael Acuna um, who uh, wrote his doctoral dissertation just a couple of years ago uh, on the the question of the resurrection specifically. Um, and I mean, it's a it's a thick book. Um, he published it and it's just over a thousand pages, uh, you know, it's, it's um, not real difficult reading. Yes, it is scholarly, but, uh, you know, it's not way over everybody's head. Um, but what he does um, is he, he attempts um, to say, if we, if we take the modern criteria for historiography, uh, that is the study of history, um, and how it is that historians attempt to verify ancient events um, to the best of our ability, uh, and we take all the sources that are available, both the Gospels as well as um, sources outside of the Bible, and we take what it is that they all agree on. Um, he said, you know, if we boil it all down, we basically have three historically verifiable realities that everybody who is at least honest in what they're looking at can agree on and say, yes, in fact, those things truly happened. And one, is he says we can historically verify that in fact Jesus died by crucifixion. So in other words, there there's no question um, uh, among historians and everybody else, uh, at least again, everybody who takes an honest look at it, that there was a person named Jesus who lived and that he right. was crucified on a cross. That That is indisputable. The second one, again, as uh, indisputable to the extent that anybody can agree on a historical event. Right. Um, a second historical reality, and this speaks to what you were just talking about, Vinny, is, again, historians will all agree when they take an honest look at it in light of all of the rest of what I've just said, that the early believers of Jesus believed that they had experiences that indicated Jesus was alive again. Now, right. they believed it. Whether or not it was true, you know, that's that's where differences come in, and that's that's what you're alluding to, Vinny. That requires a belief in the supernatural requires a belief in miracles. It requires a belief that something that never has happened in any other place happened. Um, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, now, there are other resurrection accounts in the Bible and so forth. So, you know, I'm not disputing all of those. I'm simply saying 
that a man who died by crucifixion, everybody agrees on that, rose from the dead, that's, that's a crazy thing if we take a purely secular scientific view of the world. In order to believe that, it does require belief in miracles. But what we can historically agree on is that the followers of Jesus believed that they had experiences, that they encountered something that convinced them Jesus was alive after he had died by crucifixion. So that's right. the second fact that Lacona right. brings up. And the third one is, and you already alluded to it, Benny, that Paul went from being a persecutor of Christians to being a follower of Jesus. Something happened that caused that transition to happen. Those three are agreed upon historical facts and reality. Mm -hmm. The question comes, how do we interpret that? And, and you and I believe in the supernatural. We believe that, in fact, miracles can mm -hmm. happen. And as a result, we interpret the stories that appear in the Gospels as being reliable historical accounts and that Jesus, in fact, did rise from the dead. And that that is where the, the difference uh, and the crux of the difference comes. It is a presupposition, a, a belief that I bring before I study the Gospels. I believe that God exists. I believe that he does intervene in the world. I believe that there are miracles that occur. And because I already believe those things, I, I then look at the Gospels as saying, this has something to teach me and something to guide my life. Exactly, Daniel. If everybody can agree on some basic things about Jesus and the Gospels, like you said, everybody reasonable. And that would be secular historians, archaeologists, and theists, theologians, looking not for theology, but at the textual historical evidence. Can agree there was a man named Jesus in Nazareth. He was absolutely crucified by the Romans and his believe his followers absolutely believed he was resurrected from the dead if he was or not they believed it and that these four gospels in the bible are his followers beliefs about their experience then it really comes down to interpretation and accepting what you want to accept. I think it's only fitting to let Jesus have the last word today. And to quote John, one of these very gospels we have been speaking of. Chapter five, verse 39 and 40. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life but these are the very scriptures that testify about me yet you have refused to come to me to have life Friends, come to Jesus. The scriptures are reliable. The gospels are reliable. Jesus was a historical figure that those who would want to discredit him struggle to. These scriptures are not just words. They are 
they are, what testifies about him. And if we came to him, we will have life. You have been listening to a podcast produced by simplyvinny.com. Stop by our website, read our blog, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and all that jazzy promotional stuff. But remember, I'm the podcaster that likes to remind you when life throws a monkey wrench at your head. Jesus is still the logo, the reason, the logic, the word that builds your life back all the way to the kingdom of God. Until next time, God will be blessing you. See you at the next podcast.